0: The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's word without apology in order to fulfill the great commission in the spirit of the great commandment. So turn there to Titus chapter one. We're back in our study of this book by the apostle Paul to his protege, Titus. God in his wisdom included this book in the holy canon to equip us in the gospel, in godliness, and in good works and Paul's instruction to Titus was meant for a broader audience than just those Cretan churches that Titus was ministering in but it has proven true throughout the ages since then to anyone in any church who has been willing to read and apply the truths found in these three chapters and so are we willing to read it and apply it this morning? I hope so. I hope that you come with a heart that is eager and willing to hear God's word and apply it to make application to your life. I want to read it for us, and so go ahead and listen as I read Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 9 will be our focus this morning. It says this, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is God's word for God's people. See, the concept of church government to some maybe is confusing. To others, it's a foreign concept, and still to others, maybe it is unimportant. Why does all of this matter? Did God leave instruction for how his church should be run? Did he design a plan for order and leadership in his house? Did he lay out a care plan for his children and lesson plans for the teaching and defending of the truth? Of course he did. Of course he did. It's what we see in our passage right here and in many others throughout the scriptures. And yet, sadly, uh, throughout the ages, as churches have drifted away from the scriptures, they've sought to model their order and leadership after political systems or business models that are constantly evolving rather than following God's paradigm that is unchanging and applicable in every culture and in every age. See, a plurality of godly, qualified men overseeing the direction, discipleship, discipline, and doctrine of the church who equip the saints for the work of ministry is God's paradigm for order and leadership among his people. Now, said more simply, here's the thrust of this passage, godly elders equip God's people. Godly elders equip God's people. That's, what he, that's why this is so important and why Paul spends so much time in a, the, these verses here to instruct his protege, Titus. See, there is an order to church planting. There's an order to church life. There's a right way and countless wrong ways so that God's people are being equipped so that they're growing in the gospel, in godliness, and in good works. And so who has God appointed to maintain that order? Elders, elders, and which causes us to ask then, well, who are they? Who are qualified to be elders and that Men and women is what our passage teaches us this morning. That is what we are looking at and is the focus of our attention here. See, godly elders equip God's people and first, godly elders are called. They are called, look with me, join me in verse five here. See, it is clear why Paul left Titus on the island of Crete says this. This is why. You can get more clear than than that. He is giving him a clear mission. Now there were many young church plants on this strategic island in the middle of the Mediterranean. Remember where it is. If you have the Mediterranean Sea, it's just kind of south off the tip of Greece there. And as the gospel of Jesus Christ, that good news for salvation as it spread out of Israel throughout the Greco-Roman world of that day, this island was a outpost for traveling Christians to, one, find hospitality. As they were journeying there, they would not have hotels or maybe other places to stay in, and so where could they find a safe place to stay? among God's family, among God's people. But not only was it a place for hospitality, it was also an evangelistic hotbed to share the gospel with all these people from various different countries, various different regions coming there to introduce them to Christ that God would redeem them and then be able to send them back to their place of origin with the gospel. And so it was a strategic place. It is really not unlike New Braunfels here in the greater Austin-San Antonio area. New Braunfels here is a strategic location in the hill country, but also as we think about the globe as people from all over the place are moving here. I mean, many of us in this room are not native to New Braunfels, but we have come from other places. God has called us here. Just down the road, we have Texas State and Texas Lutheran uh, universities with students from literally all over the world that are here and coming and part of our church. And so we, beloved, we here as a church, as God's people in this strategic location can be a place of rest for travelers, for people who are just here for a season and can be a launching pad for the gospel. But in order to do that, in order to be a healthy, growing body of believers, a disciple-making place, it requires order and leadership. And that is why Paul left Titus there on this island for two reasons. Look at that, look at verse five. He says, so that you may put what remained into order. The Greek word here, at the, at the really the root of the Greek word of this, uh, to, it means to straighten. It's ortho, where we where we have words like uh, orthodontist, who put our teeth straight, right? Some of y'all have been that and endured painful years of braces. Others, you may go to an orthopedic surgeon to put your bones straight. We've heard terms like orthodoxy, or straight, or right, or pure doctrine. And so Titus is left here to put what remained into order, or to straighten things out. The church was just, it was just a random kind of collection of believers, and so Titus was to come in and to maintain and create order. But these churches were growing, and disciples were being made, and they needed maturing and multiplying, and so part of Titus's mission was not only to straighten things out, but was also to, look, appoint elders in every town, among these people, of these disciples that were being made, Titus was to assess who God was setting apart, who was leading and shepherding and equipping already without a title, without an office. And then if they met the criteria of the, uh, the following verses here, then uh, he was to pass the baton. He was to pass the baton to appoint these men who would lead God's people in these churches. Paul told Timothy to do the same thing. He did it on his missionary journeys. You'll find that in Acts 14. He told Timothy, who was a pastor in Ephesus, to do this same thing. Uh, Just a few pages before in 2 Timothy 2.2, he tells Timothy, the pastor there, he says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will also be able to teach others also. There was a passing the baton. This wasn't an election or voting, but biblical discipleship and affirmation of God's gifting and calling upon men, and that baton of leadership passed to them as God's steward. See the application here to be discipled and growing in our faith is something that all of us should aspire to to be growing and discipled in our understanding and application of the gospel, in our understanding and application of godly living, in our understanding and application of good works. This is something all of us should aspire to just because we are his children whom he has called to salvation. The lack of desire to grow Or that attitude, well, I just am who I am and people can get over it. That mentality that, you know what, I've heard all this before. This is, you know, I've been in the church forever. All of these mentalities, all of these attitudes are dangerous, beloved, and they may even reveal an unregenerate heart. It's as Paul will go on to warn in, in a few verses. He said that you may profess to know God, but deny Him by your works. See, God is not finished with any of us. To those who are saved, he is continually working on us. He is at work until, and bringing it to completion, until the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1, 6 says. And you know, he's always sanding off the rough edges. He's always stretching us because he loves us. There are always lessons to be learned because we are growing up spiritually spiritually. The lack of desire to grow is like an adult content to just be a child, happy in diapers and drinking from bottles, but Hebrews 5 goads us away from that, out of lazy spirituality. Hear the warning from Hebrews 5, the writer of Hebrews. He says, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God." You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. See, just as human beings grow from little babies who can only take in milk as they grow and mature, we need the meat and potatoes that God has given us, so too in our spiritual growth. When we are baby believers, all we can take is is milk, but God has designed it that we would be growing in the faith, able to take the meat, the steak, the potatoes, the vegetables, the deliciousness of God's word. And all of us should aspire to greater godliness. All of us should. Elders are just those exemplary in it. Those who by the grace of God and the motivation of God's spirit aspire to the office and are equipping the saints. And other elders, they take notice of these and assess and train them for the work. See, godly elders are called and this is what Titus was charged to do. And so as we think about our church as Redemption Bible Church, we're just over a year old. Yes, this is the next major step for our church to call elders from among us. More than a building, more than finances, more than padded pews is the need for a plurality of godly men to join me in equipping God's people. This is what we need. This is what Paul set Titus to do in these churches and this is what we need as God's people. So will you do two things with me? Will you do two things? One, all of us, all of us strive to grow in godliness. Whether the office of elder is open to you or not, every ship rises when the tide grows. May we be a people who are striving hard after the Lord, that want to know him, that have an insatiable hunger to know God and his word. Can we strive to grow in godliness, redemption? Amen, let's do that. And would you, secondly, would you make this a regular part of your prayers? Would you beseech the Lord to raise up godly men among us? We see all throughout the book of Acts, the early church praying and fasting before the appointment of elders. Would you add it to your daily prayers? I hope many of you keep the sample prayer list. This thing that we did at the end of the summer, it's my Bible bookmark, it's what I pray, it has daily things. If you don't have one, we've got them back there at the connection table, you can get it on your way out. But would you add praying for elders, godly leadership in our church to your regular prayers? And can I even challenge you, just as we see in the book of Acts, God's people fasting for this. Would you join me in fasting one day a week or one day a month, one day a week if you want. Maybe I need to. Um, one day a month, and asking God, and pleading with him to raise up God's people. I'm just praying a simple prayer throughout the day. God, more than my body needs food to survive, so your church needs elders to thrive. Make these things apart. Godly elders are called. But who are elders? That's the question we're after. They are called by other elders. They are godly men who also demonstrate consistency. They demonstrate consistency. See verse six with me here. See, after giving Titus a clear mission, he now lays out the qualification, beginning with this overarching criteria of being above reproach. To be above reproach does not designate perfection, but it does mean consistency. It means that you are the same at home as you are at work, as you are at church, as you are wherever you go. There are no multiple sides to you. No matter who you are around, your reputation is the same. Co-workers could not levy a charge against you that would tarnish your reputation. Your kids could not tell stories about you that would bring reproach upon Christ. See, the qualification for an elder is that he is consistent that no charges could be brought against him from anybody, but especially at home. And this is where a man's discipleship and leadership and spiritual maturity are most on display. That's why he goes there. See verse six, he says, if anyone is above reproach, and then he talks about the wife. He must be, an elder must be committed to his wife. Literally here, the literal translation is a one woman man. A one-woman man, and some have, I'd say, wrongly used this expression to exclude men who have been divorced or even unmarried men. And if that was the case, I would submit to you, Paul would have used more specific language for us, and he himself, if an unmarried man was disqualified, then he would himself have been excluded, not to mention Christ himself. And so what does a one-woman man mean? What is the idea behind here? It's literally that the man is sexually pure, that there is no doubt about his commitment to his wife, that the sins of pornography and adultery and inappropriate relationships or flirting with other women are not sins that he is immune to, but are ones that do not have dominion over him. He is a one-woman man. Everybody knows who his commitment to is. And he is open and obvious about the safeguards in his life to prevent these sins from creeping in. A man is consistent. He is above reproach in his dealings with the opposite sex. But this consistency is also shown in his commitment to his children. goes on to say, and his children are believers, some your Bibles might say faithful, and that they are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. See, what this is getting at here is that a man is active in his children's spiritual growth. Some debate the extent of this because we are not the orchestrators of salvation. Who is? God is. God is the orchestrator of our uh, salvation. Yet, if a man is disengaged from his children, whether they are one or 21, He is unfit to be an elder, for an elder is a spiritual father, so to speak, in God's house. And so a man is active. He is leading and shepherding and discipling his kids. Ruly, uncontrolled children reveal that a man's discipleship abilities if they are open, if they can be to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, if our kids are wild and uncontrollable, whether they are small or they have gone out of the house and have uh, just walked completely away from the Lord, says something about the ability of the man to disciple other people. Now, there's there's, there's some wisdom and some caution here But the idea is that a man is committed, he is going after, he is active and engaged, not disengaged and passive in the raising of his children. Adult children that are faithfully grown in the Lord reveal both the kindness of God and the effectiveness of a man's discipleship. But if a man is engaged in the four Ds of eldership and discipleship, doctrine, discipline, and direction with his kids, he will also be with church members, with God's people. And so that is why this is brought out. He must be consistent in his home and in the church, and that is the key. See, successful teams are consistent. Whether on the practice field or in a game, it does not matter. Whether their opponent is a scrub team or a top-ranked team, they play their best through all four quarters and even seven overtimes. Whether it's off-season or mid-season, they're always improving their game. Successful teams are consistent. Godly elders are too. They are open and vulnerable because they have nothing to hide. So can we, as a church, can we all aspire to be increasingly good at our own lives for areas of inconsistencies? And let's be intolerant of any inconsistencies that we find and seek to be above reproach of taking active, proactive steps even today to renew our commitment to our spouse, of seeking forgiveness where we may have erred, where we have a a stain on our reputation or the reputation of Christ. May we get help from our small group for the battles of purity and inappropriate relationships, radically amputating any situation that may be causing us to sin. Let's take seriously as a church, as God's people, as parents, our responsibility to disciple our children, and not just passing it off to others, not neglecting it altogether, for the church is here to help. We are God's family here to help and equip you for the work. Elders, God's people are consistent. Now they are they demonstrate this consistency, but let's go on to verses seven and eight. They are also men of character. They're men of character. Here's this bar of consistency. And now in verses seven and eight, we have a whole list of character qualifications. But verse seven begins with another term for elder. It's the term overseer to speak of the same office, but describe a different aspect of the ministry. This is all over the place. Peter uses this in 1 Peter 5. Paul is using this here. You see it in the book of Acts of these different terms of elder denoting the spiritual maturity and overseer denoting the spiritual leadership of this office. An elder is not only able to grow himself, but he is also able to lead or oversee others in growing in the faith. See, he recognizes, as uh, Paul points out, that the church is a stewardship. An elder and an overseer is not a position of power to be trifled with. It is rather a position of stewardship that we will be held accountable for. These are the things that keep me awake at night, knowing that I will be accountable for the souls of those whom God has called to us, specifically our members here at Redemption. The church belongs to God, not to me, not to an elder, not to anybody else, and Christ is its head. Christ is the head. The elder is a slave, is a steward, one appointed to carry out the mission, one who will have to give account for how we managed people, how we spent kingdom resources and taught the word, and who is trusted with that kind of responsibility and authority. It's men of character. It's men who are above reproach. Who, who, this is repeated because it's so important. You see it there in verse six and in verse seven. He must be above reproach. It says that Paul is saying, "Don't forget this. He must be above reproach. He must be consistent." Notice this. Here's just a Bible study tip in your study and your own reading of God's word. If phrases or words are repeated, it's important. The writer wants you to know things. Underline it, circle it, see the theme there. That'll help you get to the bottom of what the message or what the theme of that section of scripture is. Above all, an elder, a pastor, an overseer, a shepherd of God's people must be above reproach, a man of character whose lives are defined by these 11 11 traits, five negative and six positive. First, look at verse seven with me. He must not be. Don't be arrogant, don't be arrogant, full of yourself, unteachable, prideful. Don't be quick-tempered, he says. That, speaking of a man who like, has a short fuse, who he's easily angered, he's prickly, like a cactus. It's, a, it's a, where people have to like walk on eggshells because they don't want to make him mad. They're, they're frozen. They, they are afraid to contradict or speak out against because the man will, will fly off the handle. Elders are also not to be drunkards, speaking of an addictive personality, of turning to something other than the Lord when they are stressed, when they are worn out, when they need to lighten their load. This isn't necessarily saying that a pastor or an elder cannot drink ever, but is defined as someone who is both overconsumes alcohol to the point of inebriation but I would also submit to you somebody that has dependent consumption, a person who has to have that beer at five o'clock every day, the person who, when they are tired or hurting or whatever, that they turn to the bottle instead of the Bible. Elders are not to be drunkards, a manner of life defined by these things. They're also not to be violent. Now, the obvious application here is somebody who's fighting. Apparently, that was the case in, in Crete. They were still, you know, rough and tumble type guys. They're not to be violent in that way, but it also speaks of an aggressive personality, of somebody who imposes fear, especially at home with his wife, or with his kids, who takes discipline way too far. It is not to be defined of a man qualified for an elder. He's not to be violent, but gentle, First Timothy 3 says. An elder is also, lastly here, not to be greedy for gain somebody who's all about the money. And this is not just greed, it's not just a problem for the rich, but there are many poor people who struggle with this as well. This can be especially true for pastors who use the platform to just pad their own pockets, to buy their own bigger houses, or multiple houses, or bigger cars, or airplanes, or whatever. God's people and God's yeah. leaders can be paid they're not to live in poverty. They're to be taken care of, First Timothy 5 says. They're to be uh, considered worthy of double honor, those who, especially who labor in preaching and teaching. But they're not to be greedy as a characteristic of their lives. For who could be any of these five things if they think of themselves as a steward <coughs> of somebody whom, God, who, whom Christ himself died for bought as a possession for himself, and then handed to these men as a stewardship to care for? How could anyone be these five things and view the position as a stewardship? But rather, look who elders are to be, rather, verse 8, they're to be hospitable, not just their wives, but even men. The idea of hospitality is to be invitational, of inviting strangers in to your safe place, of, of uh, where your home is not just your own little like cave, but it is a tool for ministry. Hospitality is an expression of love, especially for the family of God. It's a command for all believers. Romans 12 speaks of this. And you know what, beloved? I just want to encourage you, because I was so thrilled as your pastor to hear this happening even this week, uh, the Thanksgiving week of many of you whose families live far away, got together and invited people into your own home this week to celebrate Thanksgiving. Good work, well done being hospitable. These are to be characteristics of our lives, not just hospitality, look at verse eight again with me. A lover of good a lover of good, that they see and savor the good things in life and are repulsed by evil and the things that we watch and the things that we read and the things that we listen to, but rather we want to see and savor the things that are edifying. That is what we want to dwell on and want in our mind. We love what is good and upright. Now and there's to be self-controlled, that goes on, where his impulses are managed, where he can say no to temptation. He can say no to what is less important and right to what God says is most important. This is a fruit of the Spirit, to be self-controlled, not giving into sin where those things are being tempered and the battle is being fought. And elders, to be upright, look it, upright and holy and disciplined. This idea of upright as morally upstanding, kind and dignified towards others, where he is just and respectable. He's to be holy, living a God-honoring life, growing in grace and growing in the things of God. Those things are on his mind and on his lips. Not that he is perfect, but that he lives a life that is has in mind a vertical aspect of glorifying God and all that he says and does. And last on the list, last, is this idea of discipline, where his life is well-managed, where it's not just chaotic and always stressed out, but it is prioritizing what is most important, the walk with the Lord. He is a prepared person. He is managing his life and his margins well. He is disciplined, up early, prioritizing time with the Lord. He is disciplined in his time with his wife and kids and with the church. He's a church man. He is disciplined. He's prepared. He's not just always spontaneous and flying by the seat of his pants. We are to be these things, and an elder is to be exemplary in it. Now, the list is long, and it is complex, and it seems unattainable, doesn't it? But here's what this tells us. That character counts character counts, especially among those who lead God's people. It should be noticed in that this job description for elders, that the emphasis is on character much more than on competencies. Now, not that that is unimportant, but character is of primary importance for those who represent the Lord. I'm willing to bet that your job description at work had a minimal section, if any section at all, on character abilities. And it all had to do with competencies and the skills and the aptitudes and the abilities that were required to fulfill the position. And not that it is wrong, but among God's people, God is after a transforming work, he is after our sanctification, he is after conforming us into the likeness of Christ Jesus, which is a heart change. And so it it just makes sense that since the Lord is after transformation, (laughs) he will appoint men with hearts and lives of character to be his stewards. These are things that all of us should be striving towards. These are qualities, this list here, is something that all of our small groups are helping us grow in. This is a list for all of us to come back to, to not be characterized by these things, but by these things. See, elders are not perfect in them, just exemplary men that we can follow in them and who are able to equip others to do these things and to live lives that demonstrate these things also. Beloved, character counts. Character counts. Character counts especially among those who bring order and lead. And lastly here, finally, join me in verse nine. Elders are godly men of conviction. Are godly men of conviction. The men God appoints to the task of eldering are men of conviction who hold firm with a tight grip to the trustworthy word of God. These are men who know and are immovable in biblical truth who can explain things like the doctrines of grace. He is a man who is unwavering and not blown over by every wind and gust of error. He is knowledgeable in doctrine. With faced with trouble, when the sheep are in trouble, he turns to the scripture for help and guidance. A man who is an elder is one who has a tight grip on his Bible and a firm arm around his sheep. He is a man of conviction. Why? Why must his grip be so tight? Look, look. He must have a firm grip on the trustworthy word is taught so that, it's right there, as day, middle of verse nine, so that he can do two things, play offense and defense. He must be able to throw the ball and tackle those who get away with it. He may be better suited for one or the other, but if he is called upon, he can do both. On offense, he must be able to teach. First Timothy 3 2 says, or here, that he can give instruction in sound doctrine. He's able to teach the deep things of God so people can understand. Some may be uniquely gifted in other areas, gifted to teach children, or even to teach seminarians. They may be gifted in other uh, contexts, in a one-on-one context, or in a small group, or in a large group, or behind the pulpit. But the idea here is that he is unfazed by the complex questions that people may levy at the word of God, the things that we are wrestling with, and he has the tools to figure it out. He can give instruction in sound doctrine, whether to a child or to an adult. And on defense, on defense, he must be able to rebuke those who contradict it. He must be able to sniff out what is unorthodox, what is crooked, What is not in line with God's word and with love, grace, and truth rebuke the false teacher or to show from the scripture why that idea is not biblical. See, elders are shepherds charged with protecting God's flocks and when wolves approach, a shepherd wields his staff to beat them back. And the enemy would love nothing more than to let false teaching sneak into a young church like we at Redemption to destroy us but rather elders are wary and attuned to what is being taught and read and listened to among God's people and are consistently bringing us back to the word of God as our standard and authority. They're holding the biblical standards of the gospel, of godly living and good works which we are to be about. And so what are we to do? This is the characteristic for an elder. This is who is set apart and who is exemplary. These are the things, it's a man who is called, who demonstrates uh, consistency, character, and conviction. What should we do in this conviction as God's people? Well, we should all desire a firm hold on the trustworthy word. It'll keep your ship afloat. It'll keep you anchored in times of trouble. God's word, doctrine is not like this is some dirty word, but it is the gold of God's word that anchors us when we need direction, when we need hope, when we need help. And so here's what we need to do. We need to be a people who dive into doctrine. You don't know where to start? Here's a great place to start. 20 beliefs every Christian should know. Kudos to our ladies who read this, studied it, met in the Women's Book Club last month. ladies, good job. I'm sure there was probably some chapters that were maybe a little hairy, maybe that uh, brought up more questions, so I pray that you would continue to dive into it. Men, come on. (laughs) Let's get after it. Let's get after it. Don't be intimidated by these things. Don't be intimidated by big words of theology and things. Maybe you're like, I've got those things. I've got a good rudimentary understanding of theology. Well, here's another book for you. You mastered that book, Biblical doctrine, just came out recently. MacArthur and Mayhew put this together and it is a treasure trove of uh, a trustworthy word as taught. It won't be something that you just read at night before you're falling asleep. It'll take, it'll take mental fortitude, but it'll be worth it. It'll be worth the gold which you find as it takes you to the scriptures to see the order and the logic of things that are being taught. Here, dive into doctrine. Be men and women who hold firm to biblical doctrine. I've got all kinds of books for us today. There's a rudimentary understanding. There's a seminarian understanding. But here's something. Maybe you just want to uh, study one element of biblical theology. Maybe, you just, maybe this concept of, uh, uh, of eldership and church government is a new concept to you. It's a, the theological term for this is what we call ecclesiology. It's the study of the church. And the scripture has much to say about it. And so here's a way to study this topic. I have these books called Biblical Eldership. It's real small, it's, I don't know. 30 pages, and I have a bunch of copies of these at the back at the connection table for any who want to grow in their understanding and see what God's word has to say outside of just these few verses in Titus on this topic. I have it here for you. Go back, take it, read it, give it to your spouse, read it together, see the biblical mandate for God's design for church order and leadership. This is a goldmine here, this little book. And if you have questions, if you want to talk about it, if you want to know a plan, if this is something that interests you, let's talk about it. Because you will discover in this the wisdom and kindness of God to lay out a plan for us in this little book that takes you to the scriptures. It's fantastic. It's a fantastic little book. I only have copies of these. I don't have copies of that to give away or even (laughs) 20 beliefs. That's a little more expensive. But beloved, just as we close here, Godly elders, what? They equip God's people. This is a major step for us. This is a major step, and God in his kindness is doing this great work, and we have great hope. We have great hope that that God will be good to us, that elders will be appointed among us as all of us seek to be men and women of character, of conviction, of consistency in our godliness. May God be kind to us as we pursue him, strive after him, and grow as a church family together. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray as we close out.